Welcome to Unexpressed, where we put words to the inexpressible. My name is David White, and I'm the publisher at Whitefire. Over the years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to work with some really amazing people, very talented authors mostly, who have a unique view of the world. Our focus has been on the things that are important and challenging, viewed through the lens of storytelling. Our readers and our listeners are a part of that process. So if you're like us and you're looking for a podcast that will challenge you and encourage you to challenge yourself, you've come to the right place. Today we're continuing our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading. This is episode five. So if you haven't listened to the other episodes, be sure to go back and listen to those first. Today we're gonna jump in and discuss how we read and write books as communities and how those communities help us be better and change the world. All right, so last week we talked about character lenses and the way your characters view the world Mm -hmm. and making good choices and how, you know, writers can make it clear, I guess, to the audience what the, you know, what your intention is. Right. Add some art to it. Add some art. Art and argument, I think the two really do go hand in hand. Yep. Today, I think one of the things that there's two sides of what we're we're looking to look at that, that go along with the purposeful choices, which is sometimes... When you are writing, you don't always know, like you don't always have the best perspective and lens on a thing, right? <laughs> like sometimes your perspective isn't sufficient. Yes, this is sadly very true. We tend to think of writing as being a very solitary endeavor, but in all truthfulness, it's not at a certain point. So, I mean, as as an author from the author perspective I wrote a lot of years just me. It was just me writing stories that I wanted to write, how I wanted to write them. And once in a while, I would invite someone to read them with the understanding that they would tell me I was brilliant. And that was it. (laughs) But Well, when you invite someone in to read what you've written, it's sort of scary, right? Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you know, what if they hate it? Because, you know, when everyone talks about, I want to be a writer, I want to tell stories, you imagine... You imagine the world where you sell millions of copies and yes. lots of people talk about how brilliant you are. Right. And live on the mansion on the hill or... Well, the, the mansion notwithstanding. Like, it just from the point, a reader point of view, right? You imagine yourself with lots of readers. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the truth is you're assuming that they all assume that you're just as brilliant <laughs> as you want to imagine yourself. But the second you go to hand it to someone else... The fear sets in. The fear, the fact or the thought that you don't know what you're doing or what you're talking about for sure so how do you fix that i mean it seems like you have a couple choices at a certain point right is keep writing for yourself forever and you hear these kinds of stories historically right where there's the reclusive author who wrote and no one ever published anything until after they were dead and then they realized that they were brilliant right all the posthumous stuff where the family discovers it and gets it published yeah but that's not probably the best way to go is to be the reclusive <laughs> writer because then chances are you're not the brilliant writer you think you are. Let's just be really honest for a minute about right. it. Right. Editing is a very real thing even when even when you're editing the manuscript of someone no longer with you, edits still need to be done even if they can't be the ones to do it. So, yeah. So, I mean, for me as an author, I was one of those people that did not like critique. I did not understand this whole idea of constructive criticism because it all just felt like tearing apart to me. And I, he has been around me enough to remember the days when I would fight you over suggesting a word be removed from a sentence. 
and it, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> but that was also when it was not, it, I wasn't published. It wasn't, it was really just for me. And when I came to the decision that, you know, no, I'm really going to pursue this publication thing seriously. And I am at the point in my life where I realize if I'm going to do that, it's going to require working with other people. And that means being willing to work with other people. Yeah. So how do you find that first other person, I guess? Like, like you've got to get over that hump. Yeah. Well, most of us start with our mom or our husband or our best friend. A lot of people, one of their first readers will be that friend who's the English teacher who can offer them, you know, a little bit of constructive grammar, you know, all that sort of thing. So usually you start with someone The English teachers scare me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, just looking at it from the perspective that I have now, like, English teachers can be, don't take this offensively, English teachers, but can be some of the worst editors there are because... Because they're used to doing academic papers. Or they, they, or they're used to students where they need to fix their grammar. Right. Where, whereas when you're writing on a certain level, you're often making very stylistic choices. And please don't go in and fix all of my, you know, word endings when I'm writing my country character, you know as a silly example, or don't try to fix my fragments. They're there on purpose. Right. They are fragments for a reason. You can end with a preposition. Right. Absolutely. And most, most of the time, the, the English teachers I've had experience with in this realm, they understand that because they read a lot. Right. So they get that. But sometimes it requires them being able to turn off but, the switch. But what I guess I'm getting at is do. when you ask someone to read critically... Yeah. If you get that English teacher to read critically, their critically goes back down to, I'm an English teacher. <laughs> yeah, you have to know what you're asking for and know what you're, yeah. Right, so that's a really important part of it too, is you have to almost give them guidelines. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so like in my writing journey, I got to the point where I wanted critique partners. So I wanted people that would be coming alongside me in, in pretty much everything I wrote and growing with me, learning my style. I would be learning theirs, growing with them. And we would then be able to spot each other's weaknesses in the story. We would know each other's strengths and weaknesses in general. Like, I am the common Nazi. That's who I am. Everybody knows that when you have a question about how to do the grammar in a sentence, you email Rosanna. That's just the way it works. I, I have a text from my best friend here today going, did I phrase this sentence correctly? Is it clear? Right, which means then... Uh, aspiring writers, you don't have to have your grammar perfect. No, no. You have to be willing to work on it and to learn. But, you know, the eyes... And her I, best friend is not like some, you know, no name. No, no. It's Stephanie Morrill. She runs Go Teen Writer. She, you know, has many, many books published. She's very successful in her own right and has times where she cannot figure out for the life of her where a comma goes. And that's fine. She asks me. And then when I can't remember what that, you know plot device is supposed to be called and where that's supposed to fit in, I email her because she's better at the big picture stuff. So when you're working with people over a long period of time, you really get to know each other's strengths in editing and you get to know each other's voice in, in their writing. And it just, it helps you really get to the point where you can, you can shore each other up. You can make, make each other stronger. And, um, but it requires trust and it requires time to build that but if you ever intend to work with an editor, it's good to get your feet wet. Because let me just tell you, even like positive edits where they love the book, you're going to get at least four pages of notes. So you just kind of get used to the idea that there's going to be critique. Yeah. And if you can be happy with the idea that the notes are there to make it better and not take anything away, 
That is a huge mental hurdle. Yeah. So, and especially every aspiring author has probably heard the horror stories of editors who mutilate their Do it manuscripts. Again. Well, yeah, there's that. But then there's the ones who come in later who just like totally take their voice out and ruin everything they've done. And, you know, no one wants that. Everyone is terrified of editors who take the soul out of their story or take the voice out of their yeah, story. Like, I think that there's dozens of ways or maybe hundreds of ways an editor can make it worse. Right? <laughs> sure. Hopefully we don't do any of those. But for the most part, that's going to be few and far between. I've had 20-some books out at this point, and I have never once had that experience. Um, What I have had instead are a lot of experiences with a lot of different editors at this point whose goal and whose really success is that they see the heart of your story and help you draw it out more. Um, Because a lot of times, especially when you turn in a first draft, it's messy. It's it's cluttered. You're still got all these, you know, random brainstorms. Yeah, do you even know the heart of it. your story? You don't always. You think you do. You always think you do. You think you've got it. And then your editor says, but what about this? And you go, oh, of course, that was her journey the whole time. How did I not see that? Um, and that's the fun part. Like once you once you get over the whole, okay, my story is not just my story anymore. My story is meant for other people. If I'm going to let other people in, I have to be willing to listen to other people and make this more their story and not just my story. And once you're willing to do that, then it, it opens up this whole new realm of creativity. So that's really what I encourage when I speak to author groups, that's really what I encourage them to do is view the editorial process as a different but no less creative part of creativity. Yeah. And I think that then it even goes beyond the editorial process. While you're describing some of this experience, I'm thinking about the heart of the story going back to a couple of weeks ago with Arabelle, right? You didn't know. I mean, you knew sort of what her heart was, but you didn't realize the way that that was going to connect Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the amazing things about art and the reason that it is it is what it is in the world and has always been is that the creator's experience is only half of it. I mean, you know, you you create something. At whether best, it's, I think. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's a painting or a book or a poem or music or whatever, you create it, you put it out there. You have no idea what it's going to mean to people. I mean, you know, look at Andy Warhol and his soup cans. I don't know what it meant to him, but people get things out of this that is, you know, more than just... Right. And some authors, you know, they wrote a book for a paycheck. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or there are people who write things as as an assignment, a school assignment uh, that they then take and, you know, do something with. There are all sorts of reasons people create, but it's truly amazing how art will reach out and touch someone and touch them on a level the artist could not have anticipated, um, much less designed purposefully. Right. And I think that the other thing that we hadn't even talked about this being part of this today, but how much art is a communal experience. Mm-hmm. Like everyone who reads a book reads it separately, but they're all reading the same book. It sort of, it gives them a vocabulary, a way to talk about the world right. that you, you didn't have before. If the author and editor did their job, I should say editors, because there's rarely just one, but if they did their job well, and it's something that's accessible to people, you then end up with a real communal experience. And that's true with a lot of art. Right. The, The common language it creates. 
I mean, you know, we like to joke because in our house, half the conversation are television quotes that we pepper into everyday conversation in ways that people who've never watched these shows just don't get, and that's fine. They just think we're talking. But, you know, we recognize that it's appealing to this common thing we experienced. And has we, a very sp- particular meaning right. in some cases. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, we have a family language, and the same goes for any any group, any society. You end up with this common language that usually revolves around art. And it was actually something I even noticed in college when we were reading, because um, we read through like the ancient Greeks and reading them, they're referring back to each other constantly. And so if you hadn't read this thing that came earlier, you wouldn't understand this later reference to it. But because you do, you laugh and it's funny and you're, you're taking part. You're in on the joke. You're, you're in, in on, on the 2000 yeah, exactly. year old joke. You're in on the joke. But I just remember reading that and being like, wow, I mean, that was to them, like these plays and these dialogues were to the ancient Athenians as, you know, Disney movies are to us today. Everyone has seen them. Everyone can comment on them. Everyone knows if you say, let it go, you're picturing Elsa, you know, and having her, her big moment. It just becomes part of the, the community dialogue. One of the questions that we'd written in was, should books be read purposefully in a community? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's, there are plenty of books I read just by myself, but when you really love a book, what's the first thing you do? You go and tell someone about it. You go and tell someone about it. And if they haven't read it, all you can do is say, you have to read this book, you have to read this book. And you shove the book at them, hoping they will read it so that you can talk about it. I mean, if this is a really basic part of, of the, I don't know, the consuming art process, or even just of living. We are communal creatures. We want to share experiences with people. So, I mean, that's why, you know, however long ago it was, 10 years ago, I guess, at this point, you know, I, I formed a book club in my church with a couple people from my homeschool group because I wanted that communal experience. I missed it. I hadn't had it since college. I was just reading books and occasionally talking to people online about them, but I wanted something more. And, you know, so now it's it's great having that once a month, every month, you come and you talk about a book that you all read. There is just, there's this, I don't know, I want to almost say like ethos or there's this mystique around the person who just sits and reads all day in a, you know, a sunny little reading nook. Right. And, you know, don't bother me reading type of thing. Only companion is cats and, <laughs> and chocolate, you know, that Ooh, kind of yeah, thing. yeah. Is that okay? I mean, I think it is okay. Um, Heaven knows there are days when I want to do that. And occasionally, not very often in my life now, but occasionally days when I did just do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, But I would say unless you are doing it very deliberately in a specific way, like taking notes and, you know, basically creating that experience just with yourself, you're going to miss something like There are things you don't fully understand about a book, things you really don't even think to delve into in a book until you are talking about it with someone else. Um, I know like, you know, again, going back to our college experience, if, if I just sat down and read a dialogue of Plato... I'm going to retain about 10% of it. It's going to mean very little to me. I'm going to be flipping the pages as fast as I can. And then I'm going to walk away and I'm probably going to forget about it. You're going to walk away. Like your goal at that point is get through it. Right. And so you miss a lot. Yes, absolutely. And even with a novel that you're deeply, deeply engrossed in, your goal is still sort of get through the plot, right? 
Right, because like, then you're involved and you're so interested, you want to see what's coming next. Right, like the idea of get through it is not always a bad thing. It's not always like, you know, high school days where it's like, <laughs> oh, I've got to get through this book. <laughs> right, it's not a have to cram for the test on Monday. But it, But it's still like a rushing, not savoring, not really getting the full value out of it type right. of thing. And I don't know too many people that take a uh, notepad and paper next to fiction. No, there are the occasional ones. And I remember, I, I will always remember this, and I should tell her this sometime because she would probably find it hilarious. One of our friends who was with us on a beach trip, and she was sitting there with a book, but she had her eyes closed. And I was just watching her going, you know, did she fall asleep? And then she'd open her eyes again and she'd read another bit and then she'd close her eyes again and just sit there for a minute. And eventually I was like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm letting it sink in and absorbing it and thinking about it before I go on. This was a novel. It was like a Madeline Lingle book or something that she had read before as a kid and was revisiting. And it was just like, wow, like I never do that with my for fun reading, you know, I don't just sit there and absorb it and let it sink in. But how different would the experience be if I did? Yeah, it makes me wonder a little bit like, okay, everyone don't listen to this for a second. <laughs> but if we just took more time, like if we just accepted that it might take you six months to read a book. Everyone again, don't listen. <laughs> don't do that. Buy read a book a that. week. Yeah. No, you can buy them. Just take six months to read them. I don't care after that. No, I, again, I can't. But like, what if we were willing to take more time? I mean, read a paragraph or a page and let it sink in might be a little excessive. Might be, might be a little excessive. But I think it would be a very different experience. But I think, you know, because most of us do not take that long to read a book that we're really interested in. And the way to get that same fullness out of it is to bring different perspectives together. Because what really struck me is going to be different from what really struck you. Right. So I guess one of the things we haven't talked about is why bother? Why, why bother with what exactly? Why bother going through all the effort to write a good book, to have someone help you make it a better book, to edit it? Why bother trying to read it well and have a communal experience where you can talk about it. You know, what's the point? Oh, golly, that's a small, easily answered question here. <laughs> Way to ask the big ones. Um, I mean, I don't know if there's, you know, a simple, simple answer. That could be a whole talk in and of itself. But I think, you know, the idea of stories being worth reading and it has to do with, really living a deep life. Um, I, I came up with this phrase, actually, when I was talking about writers, uh, that, you know, I want to encourage people to write deeply. And you can only do that if you live deeply. And I think part of living deeply is reading deeply. And it's it's not being content with the surface of things. And I think reading, is a, as we've talked about many times before, is a great way to see other perspectives, to consider other things, to learn things. So, it's it's crucially important that authors are producing these books that can stand up to that that are that are worthy of that calling. Well, and isn't calling is an interesting word there, right? Because the best stories call everyone from writer to editor to reader to do something or to not to be changed by what they're doing. Right, absolutely. To to view life in a new way or to I mean, sometimes it has an, an overt challenge to go out and do something. 
Um, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, approach this person in your life differently or approach your own heart differently or, you know, change your lens a little bit like we were talking about last week with character lenses. Yeah, we didn't really actually talk about it in that way maybe is that you put on the characters. Yeah. Lens. And I think that's that's why it can be so impactful because while you're reading that book, you've got their glasses on. So you're seeing the world as they see it and that's a powerful thing. So what what do you, what does it hope to accomplish, I guess is the the best way to put it. Well, changing the world. <laughs> I mean, our, the, the motto of our companies for all of the different imprints all comes down to because stories change the world. Television changes the world. How many times do you hear people often in a complaining way saying how, you know, all the commercials are pushing this agenda or all of, you know, these TV shows are, are teaching our children this? Well, they're worried about it because it works, right? Like TV, film, books, any media, really, even to a point, comic books, you know, those are stories too. They change the way we think about things. They change the way we view the world. And when they change the way we view the world, it makes the world change because the world's just a collection of all us people who are perceiving it. So if we're all perceiving it differently, change happens. So we want to make sure that it's good change, right? And I think one of the ways that we change the world. I mean, that's that's a lofty goal, right? How do you change the whole world? Well, this is the miracle of art and of books is it changes one person first. Like it starts with me. So if I want to change anything about the world around me, I can't just go out and expect everyone else to understand my epiphany. First, I have to change myself. I have to be better. I have to improve. I have to grow. And, you know, that's why... I don't know if, if anyone listening has followed my stuff, but I have started, first it started just as a few blogs and kind of rolled into this whole group community thing called hashtag be better. Um, and it's just the idea that, you know, Christ calls us to a really lofty thing. He calls us to perfection. And that's that's a big goal, right? But we have to take it one step at a time. We have to identify our faults. We have to identify our weaknesses and want to change them. We have to be willing to see where we may fall short, where we may judge people, even when we never never meant to, we're never even aware we were doing it. We have to see our own biases. And story has a remarkable ability to help us do that. Because as we talked about in, in some of the other ones where we were talking about empathy, a book, a story, a movie can make me understand people that I've never even thought of before, make me commiserate with them, make me want to help them, Make me repent of, uh, of yeah, the so way that I was that thinking. I make about you them. see things that you would not have seen if someone had just called you out on it. Oh right, not right. Like I mean, to use a really simple hot topic example, if you tell me I'm racist, I'm going to say no, I'm not, and I'm insulted. You would think so, um, but then you know, if I'm really looking inside myself, and often this comes when I'm reading a story where this very subtle form of racism is exposed within the story and you go, oh, there's this echo inside me I don't like. Like I'm understanding where where that person is coming from in the opposite way that I want to. I, I'm seeing in myself that there was this thing. I didn't I have even a knee-jerk reaction to defend that. Right. I have because we have a knee-jerk reaction to defend people like us, whatever that people might be. And so there are times when you just you want to defend but you see in the story that that's not the just thing. Like in a story it's usually pretty clear you know, who the who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. You don't want to be like Unless the bad guy. Unless the author is purposefully 
yes. muddying those waters. Right, and, and often they do, but you still generally have a sense of, you know, what, what the right is and what the wrong is. You can see it much more clearly in someone else's story, right? So when you then Ironically, realize... you can usually see it more clearly than they can, you know. Like, there's this weird, you have both the character's lens, but you also have your lens and the writer's lens, right? right. yeah. And sort of when you line all of those things up, clarity happens. Yeah, it's this amazing thing. And and yeah, so, you know, my, my challenge lately has been to be better. This is a call to the church that, you know, it's not okay to be no worse than the world. Um, this came up in terms of, you know, sexual harassment charges and all that. And, and a friend saying, well, it's no worse in the church than it is elsewhere. And I'm like, it's not supposed to be no worse. It's supposed to be better. We're the church. We're, we're Christ's hands and feet. We're supposed to, you know, rise higher or at least want to. And I don't like seeing when and people don't want to. And better is aspirational, right? Yeah. Like, because you would go, well, we're 10% better <laughs> than, right. it's than not, everyone else. It's not a quantitative thing. It's just a, you know... But if you're trying to be actively the word be, be. better, like, okay, 10% is good. Right. Now let's shoot for 20. Because yeah, the problem with, with, you know, the world, talking about the world here, is that they are perfectly content to wallow in their crapulence, as we call it, or whatever the actual word would be. They're filth. They're content to wallow in their filth um, because it's fun and it feels good until everything goes downhill. But that's not what we should desire as Christians because we know there's something higher. So this call to pursue something higher, I just summed up with, be better, y'all. Come on, you can do better than this. Well, sometimes it needs to be pithy, right? Like, <laughs> again, that's, that's like, again, it goes back to really deliberate word choice and what you're trying to do and where editors can help authors be better. It's like, all right, let me sum this up for you. Right. And sometimes it's a simple hashtag and sometimes it's, a really remarkable character that everyone loves, you know, slapping somebody. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think that that's, you know, one of the tools of fiction, especially, but really any, any art form is that it can, it can ignite that desire in the, the viewer, the reader, whatever it is to, to want to do something more, to want to be better, to want to rise above where they've always been. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit even back with, like, Orson Scott Card writes the books with people who are really smart. Right. But it's, it, and you pointed out that, you know, sometimes those gifts have to be drawn out of people. Mm -hmm. And, that, but it's aspirational. It makes you wonder, how can I be special? Right. Because, you know, we all are, right? Or, or like to... We certainly tell our children that everyone is special and everyone has a gift. And I think that's true. Obviously, there's We still... might occasionally worry that we're lying to our children, but... <laughs> no, no. But, you know, everyone has the potential to be something remarkable. And even if that remarkable thing is, and, and I'm not trying to downplay this, but is being generous or is being hospitable or is taking care of people... That's amazing because how many of us go through life never looking beyond our own nose, right? So, you know, we all have that potential and it's because we all have, you know, we all have Christ in us if we're Christians. Yeah, that it, for some reason that reminds me of uh, whether the story is true or not. It was a story of John F. Kennedy touring NASA and uh, ran into a janitor and Kennedy asked, what do you do here? He said, I'm sending a man to the moon. <laughs> right. He's a janitor. 
Yep. Does he build rockets? Does he, you know, train astronauts? Does he do it? No. But is his part any less valuable than the rest of them? No. They all had to wallow in filth. Right. They, they wouldn't be so productive. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that Paul describes the church as a body, right? Everyone has a role and it's all different. The important thing is that you're doing your part. If if you're a finger, you better be finging, right? <laughs> well, and I, I, I'll go back to that janitor example. Like you think, oh, well, you know, he's just cleaning. He's, you know, a replaceable bit. But you don't know that like secretly the mission director doesn't like go and talk to him over his cigarette breaks <laughs> like while he's really stressed yeah. out because who else can he talk to? He can't right. tell his bosses that he's stressed out about this and he can't let his subordinate see that he's stressed out and he can yeah. talk to this janitor who maybe is a very wise yeah so find your place and take the opportunities absolutely like that sounds like a fun story and that, <laughs> i think that's the other thing is sometimes the stories give you an opportunity to see more in yourself than you would have otherwise oh for sure i i mean that's the real power of them is yeah they inspire you but sometimes they really do shine a mirror on you sometimes to show you your weaknesses but sometimes to show you your strengths or your opportunities yeah absolutely and encourage you to walk in them and go seek them and not let them slide on by yeah and i think that so much of the time i've told people this before you know people who uh, let's just say like for example like they start a new job but they don't have a house and they don't have a car and they don't have all these things it's like great you have an opportunity to do with this moment anything you want. Mm-hmm. Like, embrace that. <laughs> like, figure out where your opportunities are. I mean, how many times do you hear stories about people who seem to have everything, but they feel utterly trapped by it? Oh, yeah, all the time. And even, you know, going back to the writing world for a bit, it's it's hilarious because you have, you have the two sides. There's always the, the aspiring authors and there's the well-established authors and they envy each other so much. So the, the unpublished people are always, you know, that's their goal. They're looking for that publication. So they're going to talk to somebody who has many, many books published and you not necessarily be envious, but really think, man, you have what I want. And the established authors looking back going, man, you have the freedom to just write and explore and discover and figure out what you love. And I have a deadline. (laughs) And that's not so fun all the time. Right. And I have written in this genre or in this space for 20 years. (laughs) And if I try to leave, I don't get jobs. Right. But I'm so tired of Regency (laughs) or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So. So I guess what it comes down to is everybody does come at life with their own perspective so i think the thing that we're we're hinting at with all of this is that story helps put our lives in perspective thanks for listening today while we talked about how we read and write books as communities and how those communities help us be better and change the world in our series on what makes good stories that are worth reading Join us next time for the final episode when we discuss the spiritual elements of characters and storytelling as we sum up the series as a whole. This podcast is sponsored by Read at Whitefire. There you can read the first two chapters of any Whitefire Publishing Group company's books. 
And if you like what you read, they're available for purchase in print format, as well as electronic formats for all the most popular e-readers. Some books even have signed copies available. And if you're a listener of this podcast, there's a chance you're a good candidate for Platy People, our membership program for unique readers. For just $5 a month or $50 a year, Platy People members get to choose two free books per month, a free novella, 15% off all purchases, including gift certificates, and free shipping to U.S. addresses. Why choose Ordinary when you can read Extraordinary? Unexpressed as part of the Whitefire Podcast Network. Please visit whitefire.tv slash podcast to find other shows we know you're going to love.